and welcome to this episode of the Horror Drafts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Brantley Palmer, joined as always by my fellow co-host, Mr. Nicholas Schwartz. Nick, how are you doing? Doing great, Brantley. How are you? I'm doing great as well. And you know what? I'm especially great today because our guest is a podcast host whose former show, Channel 83, ran for 150 episodes. He's also a writer, producer, and host of the new podcast, Mount Molehill, a show where even the smallest mysteries become mountains. Each episode, Chris dives into a different low-stakes mystery that he's been yearning to solve. The first episode, a deep dive into trying to find the jingle for Pancho's Mexican Buffet, premiered earlier this week, and I can't recommend this immensely entertaining podcast enough, so please welcome to the show, Chris. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, we are excited to have you as well because you brought us uh, an excellent topic, and we'll get to that in a second. We'll, you know, we'll get to the draft stuff, but we want to welcome you onto the podcast appropriately. Tell us more about Mount Molehill, which is this fantastic, fun idea for a podcast. How did it come to be? What made you want to start making a show about little mysteries like that? Um, yeah, so basically, as you said, the elevator pitch for it is just a podcast where even the smallest mysteries become mountains. And, you know, I did, as you mentioned, also a podcast for like two years and then took two years off. And I started thinking about what I might want to do that would be both interesting to at least some people, but also interesting enough to me to where I could keep going. Um, the podcast I used to do was channel 83 and that was pretty much about obscure horror movies exclusively. And, uh, I'm sure you guys have seen your fair share. And I felt like after two years, I was running out of things to say because they're all, a lot of them are pretty middling. So it's just like, <laughs> yeah, you know, the acting was fine. The cinematography was fine. Everything about it was fine. So I just wanted to do something that really interests me and i am the type of person that hyper fixates on a lot of things that are not easily found on the internet such as the jingle for a mexican restaurant in texas on the verge of collapse um and yeah i mean i kind of think of you know this first season of mountain wall hill it's pretty short i kind of think of it as a like a pilot season of sorts um, just because it is a lot of time and effort to research, write, record, edit, and promote a show like that. It, it, it's been an experience and, you know, I am not someone that usually cares too much about the audience response, but just considering how much work the show has been, I'm kind of waiting to see what kind of, and how much of a response I get to it before committing and saying like, oh yeah, I'm going to keep doing this. Um, so, yeah, I also have recently started putting in the groundwork to start up a new movie-related podcast. So look out for that sometime or not. I do change my mind a lot. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> well, I, I loved the first episode um, uh, about Pancho's Mexican Buffet, and uh, I was very, very happy uh, when uh, – uh, it came out and, and hearing uh, what happened and, and how everything came to be. Trying not to, I'm trying to be vague here, and I'm sorry if that sounds weird, audience, because I don't want to give anything <laughs> away, basically, is what I'm saying, because it's a great episode. Um, so you've got this first season, a pilot season, so to speak. 
if you do go on with it, and maybe this is too early for you to even say, do you think a next season would be you trying to d- dive into other mysteries, or would you kind of be, I guess, soliciting mysteries from listeners to try to solve? Both. Um, okay. I think like the whole listener participation is something that all podcasters dream of that may not necessarily ever come to fruition. Um, <laughs> I think in the two years of doing my other podcasts, like, you know, maybe five people ever said anything to me about it mm. unsolicited. Uh, you know, people just don't actually like email podcasts. That's just not something that happens to your average podcaster that much. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, hopefully at some point people will give me things because I do have a lot of ideas or a lot of things that died on the vine or I just didn't have enough time to do. But it is kind of diff. It's, I mean, I would say that's the most difficult part of the show is that. You know, I come up with an idea, but I still have to do like research to see if it's even viable. Like there's Mm -hmm. still hours of time before I realize like, yeah, I can spin this into a compelling narrative. It's not too esoteric. Someone out there might possibly be interested in it. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think it's a challenge too, because as you're trying to tackle each mystery, you never know which ones you're going to be able to solve. And so right. you don't want to, you don't want to leave the audience like unsatisfied if you just have a full season where you know you've got 10 mysteries and you right. solve two or something, right? You know, it's 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 a challenge in that regard as well. Yeah, definitely. And you don't want to it's it's a delicate balance because there's those but then there's also ones where it's like I've always wondered this and then I google it and it's right there. Oh, sure. So it's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> where's the story there? Yes, exactly. Or, yeah, yeah, that's true. I'm in, the, I'm, um, I'm in the middle of trying to get to a mystery myself, and it's seemingly very challenging, and I don't know if I ever will, honestly. Uh, so, <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> we, 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 of course, on this podcast had a mystery that has since been solved, and we joked about doing our own sort of... Uh, uh, mystery solving episode of it, which this is of course about the Mission Impossible Betamax. Was that definitively the last uh, release on Betamax in North America, etc.? And uh, uh, it, it it was in fact because we we found that it did exist because it got posted on eBay for sale. Uh, but that was thankfully due to legwork by Nick because Nick contacted the guy who was the one who put it up on eBay for sale just to confirm that he actually had it because uh, that was at the final store that um, Betamax was being shipped to, basically in America, Audio Video Plus in uh, Houston. So Nick did that legwork, and and that's what became the impetus for it actually showing up online for sale. Yeah, I find that... I didn't get it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I find that whole thing super interesting, how they were basically, like, dubbing these on demand. Yeah. I had never heard of that before. I, the only thing I can compare that to is in modern day, um, like some discs that you try to order on um, Amazon will be like uh, yep. recorded on demand on DVD-R, DVD-R kind of um, thing. But yeah. This is like an earlier version of that, and you had to, I think, buy 20. As long as you were going to buy 20 copies of it, they would do yep. it for you. It was like worth their while, something like that. That's so, right. I think it was 20. Yeah. And as far as we know, Audio Video Plus was the last store to get 
Mission Impossible, 20 copies of Mission Impossible for sale. Uh, they did do that with um, with like SVHS too. The, oh. I forget the name of the store. Super something in, I want to say San Francisco, was like one of the only stores. And I think they actually had like a deal with, um, must have been Paramount because there were a bunch of Paramount releases. Um, mm. And it was the same deal. I mean, like I, I don't think any other store sold in fact their logo super whatever video is on the back of a lot of the v- svhs releases because it was just a format that didn't take off commercially um for pre-recorded videos at least so yeah if you find any of those most of them came from this one place which is interesting but ba- yeah basically the same thing there was a store in san francisco i think or san diego uh super something video um and to my knowledge, they're like the only store that commercially sold pre-recorded SVHS. And they had some sort of a distribution deal with like Paramount, I think. Um, I don't think Paramount was the only studio who released it, but like a few of the Paramount releases, if you actually get an SVHS that was pre-recorded, actually has like the Superstore video logo on the back, I mean, of the nice. slipcase, which is, I don't know, it's interesting. It's again, it's just like this commercially released movie format that just didn't take off and one store in the entire country carried it <laughs> it's yeah. pretty cool it is pretty wild yeah yeah uh all right we can talk about less successful video formats all evening <laughs> i guess but <laughs> yeah, uh but let's get to the reason you're all here of course uh chris brought us a topic to draft here uh tonight he brought us uh obscure slashers now uh chris do you want to before we get into the draft and we'll talk about of course like what you've been watching reading listening to or otherwise enjoying uh, do you want to talk about why you wanted to to tackle that topic uh and and the the uh criteria you used to determine what was or was not an obscure slasher sure so yeah uh you and i brantley had discussed a few potential topics before landing on this one I went through the episodes of your show and George and Kron had both already taken two that I really, they really jumped out at me. Um, cause I love Kaiju movies. I love animal attack movies. And, uh, but with the obscure flat slashers, I figured, you know, if we just did slashers in general, then it could possibly be, uh, all Friday the 13th and like two screams thrown in. Sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I also, I figured you guys would probably want to save all that for some of the slash and dash episodes, you know, where you just go through a franchise. Mm-hmm. So I decided, you know, let's go with obscure slashers. And then I just sort of arbitrarily decided what obscure <laughs> means. Sure. Basically what I did was I found a huge list of slashers in Gialli on Letterboxd and then sorted it by popularity and kind of looked for the point in the list at which I wasn't seeing any of the major franchises Mm -hmm. and just sort of chose that as a cutoff, which ended up being like anything that has under 20,000 views on Letterboxd was included in our potential pool of obscure slashers. And obscure is, it's all relative. Um, Mm -hmm. What may be obscure to me may not be obscure to you guys and vice versa. So listeners don't send these guys an email saying like, Hey, such and such film isn't obscure enough because it's all arbitrary and I'm the one that came up with it. Um, yeah. And I'll, I'll say just that this list was surprising. Like I was mm-hmm. surprised to see yeah. what I would think to be fairly seminal slasher films, especially one-off slashers that were all mm-hmm. on this list. Cause they had 20,000 under 20,000 watches on letterbox 
and then I'd see I I there'd be things that I didn't see on there, and I was like like um, P two, you know the the mm-hmm. Christmas parking lot slasher movie, and I was like, well that can't possibly have twenty thousand. No, it's got like twenty two thousand views on there, so it <laughs> is not qualified. And I was like, wow, that's just surprising to me that that film has that many more than some of the titles that appear on this list. So it was a uh, it was a surprising list, and it was fun getting to go through and and revisit some of these. Um and, and and find new discoveries, uh, yeah. So that was that was fun. There so were I, some on the cusp that I was really like, man, I wish we could talk about that. But <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, I, I'll also say that some of the things that ended up on that list, since I didn't curate it past like, hey, this has X amount of views, are really wouldn't consider slashers, but it's oh, all fair. Sure. It's yeah. all fair game. Um, that's true yeah that was like because some of them i was like that's like a ghost or something yeah. like some of them like yeah. i was a little surprised that they made it onto this list so um yeah and, but it, but that's fine i mean it's a great list to go off of and and there's lots of options in it basically yeah when i was like sitting down and trying to draft i was like this episode could either be really interesting or I could have just doomed us all. <laughs> and the, the reason I say that is that there is a chance that there's no overlap between any of us and we all just get to pick the five movies that we want. That's but true. But there's also the chance that none of us have seen the other people's movies. So it's all going to be like, a, oh, cool. I haven't seen chance. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hopefully I didn't sabotage this cast before it even started. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. Uh, all right. Well, before we get into the draft, of course, we always uh, started off nice and easy. We, we, we slowly get into it and we talk about what we've been watching, listening to, reading, or otherwise consuming. Chris, you're our guest. Have you had any time for anything besides Obscure Slashers? Uh, not a whole lot. Um, yeah. but even though, you know, I think I watched like 32 movies in preparation for this. Wow. So this has been a lot. Um, <laughs> yeah. one of them that I, that I did watch, which was in preparation for this, that I feel safe talking about because it's not that much of a slasher and it's not streaming anywhere in the U S is, I, well, I mean, did either of you choose a film by Takashi Miike or potentially want to Hmm, i'm not (laughs) i'm not fishing i i will say safely that i did not have any takashi miike films on my list but my list this is the most ununiform list i've ever had i basically (laughs) just have written down the movies that i've already seen or watched in prep and i didn't order them at all but i do not believe takashi miike is on my list yeah that is exactly yep no same here i mean i assume i know what film you're talking about but um yeah it's not on my list Okay, cool. So this is a movie called Lesson of the Evil. Um, it came out in 2012. Uh, Mike, it's a pretty formative influence on my film fandom, but it had probably been like 10 to 15 years since I had had a first-time watch of one of his films. And I'm glad to say that at least as of 2012, he hadn't lost his touch. Um, yeah, like I said, this is not really a slasher film, and it's uh, it's pretty violent and has to do with a school shooting, mm. but it comes from a different time and cultural context, so it's not exactly what Americans think of when we hear that term, but it is something to like put out there just in case you don't want to watch something like that. But I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, 
And I also read the book Going to Pieces, The Rise and Fall of the Slasher uh, Film. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow, nice. <laughs> Which I'm I've sure will... parts of it. I haven't read yeah. the whole thing, so that's, that's great. We, we can definitely talk about that more later on. Um, okay. <laughs> so, yeah, as you can tell, like, it's, I've just been all, all consumed by slasher stuff. I haven't really been watching a whole lot. I think recently I've been more into, like, archiving things, mm. um, media preservation. It's always been an interest of mine something i've dabbled in here and there over the years but i've been getting pretty heavy into it recently so yeah nice. i mean if you guys ever want to do a throwback episode of physical media matters i'm your guy all right that sounds great yeah, well okay sure. so the inner archivist in me has got to know what are some of the stuff you're preserving so uh yeah it probably won't come as any surprise to you brandley but uh just very obscure japanese films like as as i'm looking over here like here are three films that have uh not ever been digitized they will never make it past vhs they have zero views on letterbox never been subtitled into english so wow those are the sort of things i'm interested in and like now like so i've been into this for a few years but the problem was i don't speak japanese and i refuse mm. to watch a movie that i can't understand yeah but with the way that AI has advanced over the past couple of years, you know, you can do that programmatically and get pretty decent results. When I had first started looking into this a couple of years ago, I went and got quotes from like professional subtitling businesses and it was going to be like $1,500, wow. which to me is like, that is a fair price, but I'm just one person. Like oh. I can't do that just to watch one movie that may or may not even be good. Yeah. Well, that's really cool. Now, uh, so I have to know, are these PAL tapes? And do you have like a PAL player to, to watch these? Or are those boots or what? So Japan used the NTSC standard. Oh, they did. So you oh, don't have to worry about this. that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I do have this really cool VCR that I wish I could pick up and show you that is like, has like a map of the world on the, f the front panel and you press a button and it will like highlight, oh, you're watching NTSC or CCAM or PAL. Um, oh, cool. I also, I do have a video eight VCR right here, a regular oh, nice. VCR, Betamax VCR and two laser disc players. Hell yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> now are those all hooked up so that you can just like, you know, digitize and preserve stuff like into the computer and everything. Yeah. I have like nice. a completely separate computer over here, um, that has all of that set up. Beautiful that's awesome man that's great yeah that's really it. cool yeah i'm jealous i wish i had the space to have a, a a setup that's just for like digitizing stuff i do at work i'm literally starting it up i just got in a a beta cam sp deck that's a, a awesome. sony uvw 1800 which is uh you know what i used to work uh on back in uh back in the day when i worked in tv and then uh got a sony trinitron monitor I got awesome. a reel-to-reel -reel tape player, so yeah, I'm excited because uh, you know we have a lot of AV stuff at the archive that I work at that is in dire need of digitization. So excited awesome. to get going on that. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I'm jealous. I wish I could get paid to do this. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun, man, and it's it's fun to get into open them up and like you know just do like the servicing and cleaning and tinkering. You know, like. Uh, you know, it's fun to just to get to like get into the guts of machines and stuff. I, I I'm not even like some like 
you know, I know so much about them. It's just fun getting in and mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just like, um, like a ritual to that sort of like cleaning of a, a machine and yeah. making sure it's like nice and in good shape, something like that. So yeah. Anyway. Look, I mean, I just have to clean the heads. Luckily I've never lived in a place. I've literally never seen mold on a VHS. Oh, wow. Like that's pretty good. Well, I mean, yeah. I live in New Mexico now, which is not humid at all. So mm-hmm. you wouldn't, but you know, I lived in Texas and Minnesota, which are both pretty humid States, but I've just, I've been lucky. I've never seen that. Yeah. Nick, I was just at Bull Moose the other day and I saw a video that was like a tour of Reno, Nevada. And I was like, that kind of is up Nick's alley in terms of the type of <laughs> weird tapes he wants, but there was mold on it. So I didn't, I didn't bring it oh, home man. for you. Oh, I mean, yeah. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> appreciate you thinking of me and of you thinking of mold. Of course. <laughs> Gotta, you know. I guess. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Nick, uh, have you had any... I mean, so, have you had any time to watch anything besides Obscure Slatchers or, or no? I mean, the short answer is no, I probably haven't. But I've, I've made... <laughs> I've forced myself to make time to just... Um, I felt major like FOMO here with every one of our guests talking about the Resident Evil 4 remake. So, mm. um, <laughs> you know, it, the, the original is like probably my most played game of all time. I think across three or four systems, I probably played through it over 20 times. So I like know that game, like the back of my hand and I've been looking forward to the remake forever. And it killed me that guest after guest was coming on our show, singing its praises. And, it's boring for me to say the exact same thing that they all have, but it's <laughs> phenomenal. Um, so I could not be more pleased with that. And for the two of you listening who haven't played it yet, do it. It's worth it. That's me. Yeah, I can't. I literally it. cannot remember the last time I played a video game. I'm sorry. Like I, uh, sorry. But, I mean, part of well, the reason. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. Well, I mean, you know, part of the reason is just usually my evenings are busy doing research. Or working on my doc, which is one of the reasons Nick didn't have as much time to, to do for things as well, because Nick was helping me make amazing titles for my documentary. Uh, oh, thank you. He, he really killed it. They were awesome. Uh, really classed up that that doc, uh, if I do say so myself. Oh, uh, thank you. Well, that's a that's what a weird way for me to put that. That's not what. It, <laughs> Usually you say if I do say so myself when you're patting yourself on the back, and I'm patting Nick on the back, so that was a weird way for me to say it. But Nick made some amazing titles for the doc, so I really appreciate it, and I feel bad because oh, I feel my like pleasure. I took up a lot of your time. Not at all. No, I volunteered. It was. Uh, I'm really happy to be involved with the movie, which you know, people should watch. I if Brantley won't plug it, I will. Everything to entertain you, and if you get a chance to watch it, you absolutely should. Yes, I second that. I also watched it. And it's very good, and everyone else should watch it. You two are very kind, and I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> uh, okay, I'm changing the subject very quickly now uh, <laughs> to talk about things that I uh, have had a little bit of time to watch, and that's going to be two TV shows. Um, I just I started a Stars membership, and I haven't had Stars in ages, but they're running this like cheap deal. It's like twenty bucks for six months, and. I knew my wife and I were going to want to watch Minx, the second season when that came on Stars. That was originally on HBO, and I also knew we wanted to finally catch up on that newest season of um, Party Down. So we haven't had any time for either of those yet, but I did start watching the wrestling TV show Heels 
which they had a first season and then their second season is starting very soon. Um, so I was watching Heels on Stars, which was pretty fun. I enjoyed that quite a bit. It was a fun uh, uh, show about a small regional wrestling organization and the family drama and stuff that goes into it. It's a little bit like a soap opera, much like the uh, kayfabe and storylines of actual wrestling uh, <laughs> is like a a soap opera. Uh, but uh, I've enjoyed it quite a bit. It was fun seeing uh, James Harrison. If anyone's a football fan, James Harrison, former football player, is in there acting now. I had no idea that he was doing any sort of acting, and he's there as a wrestler in the in the show. And actually, he's pretty decent. I mean, he's not asked to do a ton in terms of like acting and range, but he's he's you know pretty darn good. Uh, and then the only other thing I've been watching, and I have lots of thoughts about this show, and I'm not gonna go crazy on them, is my wife and I have been watching the newest season of Project Greenlight, that is oh, being yeah. hosted by Issa Rae and Kumail Nanjiani and Gina Prince Blythewood. Uh, although Gina Prince is really she was in like the first episode, maybe the second. And then I really haven't seen her since. And we're not all the way finished with this season. Um, I think we're, we've watched the first seven or eight episodes. Um, I find it entertaining, but both frustrating as well. Have either of you been watching this new season of project Greenlight? No, not yet. I no. heard, I mean, I love that show, but I, haven't I seen it didn't even know it was still a show until you started talking about it on discord <laughs> it's yeah. been revived right i mean like it was yeah. off the air for a while okay yeah. this is the second time it's been revived so they had a fourth season that was like in the 2010s like mid middle of the 2010s or something and then it went away again and now it's being revived a second time and this time Issa ray's production company who ray is producing both the television show as well as the movie, the movie's going to premiere on Max, or it actually already has. Uh, and then there's a, another production company called Catchlight that is the producer on the film, but not on the TV show. And th- I, I really like the Project Greenlight show, but one of the issues that it's always had in every season is that um, it seems like they're more interested in making a good television show than a good movie. And in this season, that's like more clear than ever that that's the case. And I find it very frustrating because a lot of the Hooray producers are like not really being very helpful in the pre-production phase. But then once they're getting into shooting are being like, why are there these problems? We did everything we were supposed to. We did everything right. And they're kind of put, we're putting on a catch light. And I was just like, oh my God, like <laughs> They so here's the thing. I'm sorry. I, I said I wasn't going to rant too much about it, and here I go. They started without a finished script. Mm. Instead of finding a great script already, because they said that we want to go genre, and they're like, instead of going on to like Coverfly or Bloodlist or like some other like, you know, a, a script award show, and like like literally optioning a good script, they commissioned a script from a writer, and it was like not in good shape they had like a i don't know like an early draft basically but they're like there's problems with it but we're gonna give this director only seven weeks of pre-production where the majority of her time is spent in meetings and hiring department heads and doing all this other pre-production work but also expect her to rewrite the movie 
in that same amount of time that she's trying to prep to direct the movie. And so it was just like, I mean, it, more than ever, it's like they were setting the director up for failure. So it's entertaining, but at the same time, it is just so frustrating to watch. And you feel so bad for Miko, who's the, the director this season, because, yeah, she's just, she's really been dealt a shit hand. And she's a very quiet person and you can tell she, like when you're there in a room with producers she's not like a definitive like she doesn't per- come off as uber confident in a way that gives people a, a lot of like faith in her um but w- when you see her on set and you see her working with actors and you see her like knowing what she wants to do with like the shot list and everything that she wants to do she's like boom like laser focused like seems to be and like knows like what exactly what she wants um and it just sucks because i think even on set like they're not doing the best to help her succeed either um and it's really interesting this season because the project Greenlight crew who's trying to shoot all the making of the movie and the actual production crew are really butting heads and like getting pissed off at each other um you know because they're essentially getting in each other's way so it's entertaining but frustrating is is what I will say, and I'm sorry to be going on for such a long time. I'm, I feel like I, I've just realized I've really probably been really rambling here about <laughs> no, Project Greenlight. <laughs> no, it's interesting. I, I yeah, that sounds sounds like compelling television, but I can see yes, the frustration. Yeah, yeah, it's really you. You feel, I mean, every director has kind of had like a poor experience with Project Greenlight. It feels like, and this season, I feel like really it's been very rough on Miko, the person who won it so anyway i could be remembering this wrong but isn't this a show where like the first season they made a movie like a horror movie called feast or feast. something like that i think that was season two i think it was actually season three. Oh, okay. oh was it it was it went what's the fr- the first season it's it was the like first that drama were dramas it was like yeah. stolen summer or something like that and then yes battle of shaker heights with shia labeouf and then the third season, because Miramax <laughs> was so pissed that the first two seasons didn't go anywhere and didn't like make them money, uh, the third season they like forced them to go genre. They're like, you have to do like a horror movie so that we can hopefully make, make some money, money with yeah. this movie, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, it must have made money because you know it's There's gotten two, two sequels, sequels. I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, Feast is probably the most, certainly the most successful film to come out of that um, franchise. But I think. I mean, even then, they had a tough time with the actual, like, production and everything. Mm. So, you know, it is what it is. Uh, But, yeah, they tried to go genre this season, but I think they basically tried to make, like, a superpower sci-fi kind of thing on a $3.5 million budget and just just go horror. (laughs) I I don't get it. I mean, three and a half is a good budget for a horror. It's not one when you're trying to emulate a comic book movie, essentially. You know, yeah, it's yeah, it's tough. It's tough. Anyway, I've been ranting long enough. Jesus, I'm sick of hearing my own voice. So <laughs> we're getting into the draft, everybody. <laughs> Let's do it. Uh, that's my crappy transition into the draft. Um, we've wasted enough of Chris's time already. Jesus. Uh, okay, so uh, we're drafting obscure slashers. We rolled our four sided die before uh, we began recording. The order of the draft is going to be Nick, then Chris, then myself. And, of course, it's a snake-style draft, so that means I will go first in the second round, and Nick will go last in the second round. So, 
to kick us off in the obscure slashers draft nick you are now on the clock with the first pick of the draft all right as always i must preface this by saying um i I think slashers as a genre it probably goes without saying but my list does not necessarily reflect <laughs> what are my favorite movies or even movies that I would recommend people watch. Um, there's, uh, you know, every movie holds a special place in my heart. Um, but yeah, I mean, th- this episode more than any other, I think I'm going to be picking movies that I couldn't wholeheartedly say you should go check these out. <laughs> uh. <laughs> I, I have to preface it with that because, but anyway, um, that being said, there's still a lot of fun to be had. And I am going to start off my list with um, 1982's Alone in the Dark. Um, nice. Yeah, starring uh, Jack Palance, uh, Donald Pleasance, and Martin Landau. And a very young... Um, well, she's only in it for like a second, but a very young Lynn Shay, which was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, nice. She's got like a very small cameo. But... Um, that's tough, yeah. I mean, considering the director went on to do the Nightmare sequel. Yes. Right. Oh, right. 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 Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. Nightmare two. Yeah. Um, yep. So I had not seen this before prepping for this episode, but I've had it uh, for like twelve years because <laughs> I bought it because my uncle is in it. Um, yeah. And uh, interesting. Yeah. So I. It was. I don't know, maybe I'm being too subjective, but it was fun for that reason alone. But it's also actually, it's, a, it's less slasher and more of a, like a home invasion thriller. Um, mm-hmm. And I've been like hearing a lot about this movie lately in the last few years. Like, I'm not sure if there's been a resurgence or if maybe I just live inside this like bubble on Instagram of like-minded people. Um, but I see it talked a lot, talked about a lot. Um, and I, I'd been dying to see it and it was really fun and it's competently made. It's, you know, handsomely shot there's you know obviously great performers character actors in it um but yeah more than anything else it was just really wild to watch my great uncle play a crazed preacher in like (laughs) a b movie (laughs) so i have to ask have you seen the being from 1983 i have not because you're talking about uh martin landau right yeah he is also in that. That's a great movie. You should check it out. The Being. All right, I'm gonna. <laughs> it's going on the list. But yeah, uh, this is. I also watched this for the first time in preparation for this, and it was one of the better ones that I watched. Um, like Nick said, it is more sort of home invasiony, but that doesn't. I mean, that's. You know, genres fake, as as people like to say. So <laughs> it's like, it's not a hundred percent anything, but. It has some pretty good practical effects. Um, a really great cast. The main character, I, I'm sorry, I don't know the actor's name, but he plays oh, uh, um, a recurring character in The Next Generation. Lieutenant Barkley, I think is his name. Dwight Schultz, I think is the actor. So that was fun, seeing him in something that wasn't Star Trek. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I guess... It... it it was good. I think a lot of people might consider it problematic by today's standards for oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. its depictions of people in 
an, an institution. Um, but yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, that's a great pick, Nick. I, I didn't rewatch this for uh, this episode. I'd seen it um, a while ago. Uh, so I apologize because it's the least fresh in my mind, probably of uh, of both of you. Um, but I remember really enjoying it at the time, and I got I, I understood why the director was picked to do the Nightmare sequel because there is almost like this dreamy kind of quality to the to the film. So I I, uh, I dug that. I recall digging that. I think it got a um, did it get like a Scream Factory Blu-ray release or something? Yeah, I wonder, I wonder if that's maybe the resurgence it's had in the past few years. Yeah, like a year or two ago, I think it was Scream Factory, but I got yeah one of those like specialty labels put out a okay deluxe disc. Um, but you're right, yeah. I mean, like that's maybe the perfect way to describe it. It has like this weird dreamlike logic to it. Um, mm-hmm. And in fact, there is without ruining anything, there is like one actual nightmare sequence where I think the effects were done by. Um, Tom Savini randomly oh, nice. um, <laughs> nice. uh, a really good makeup effects in that scene but it lasts like 25 seconds so it's weird to see his name in the credits but um, mm. yeah uh, very dreamlike quality that's exactly how I would describe it um, but yeah I, this one I actually would recommend it was fun nice alright well that is the first pick of the very first round and the first pick of the entire draft but we're on to the second pick of the first round and that's going to our guest Chris you are on the <laughs> clock sir Okay, so in preparation for this episode, I did uh, do some fishing on Discord. I asked people, I sent them the list. I was like, are there any on here that I should check out? Partially just to see if there were any that I missed, but also to see which ones were mentioned the most often to sort of strategize. Um, But this one was not mentioned by anyone. I may be making a fatal mistake here, but... I have to go with the spirit of the show. I have to draft with my heart. <laughs> and I have to go with Don't Go in the House from 1980. Um, okay. Have either of you seen that one? No, I no. have not seen that one. Uh, this was one of those ones that I was surprised that it was even eligible to be selected. Um, I was even more surprised that nobody on Discord called this out as a favorite because it's been a favorite of mine for a while now. So maybe it just feels to me like it should have been seen by more people. But I guess in reality, it's still somewhat obscure. Um, Mm. There are at least four different cuts of this movie, which is uh, possibly why it hasn't broken out. Because a lot of the cuts are based on the TV version of the film, which has some very bad like dubbing uh, for like uh, censorship of like cursing and stuff like that. So it makes it feel like a much cheaper film than it actually is um it's it's like you know it's been put out by several of the big labels but i just none of them have really gotten it right i don't think uh but anyway uh what this movie is about it's about a guy named donnie kohler uh played by dan grimaldi who will probably only be familiar to people if they've seen the sopranos he played a pair of twin characters philly and patsy parisi so this guy donnie works at like i don't really know what it is it's like sort of a trash incinerating factory or something and he lives in a giant mansion mansion with his abusive mother his mother dies and that sets donnie over the edge and he starts killing people i should say that it's revealed pretty early on in the film that as a child his mother would punish him by holding his arms 
over the open flame of a gas stove. And along with working at an incinerator, you know, he has an obsession with fire. Um, and this is the first of many of my picks that may not be considered by a lot of people to be very slashery because Donnie doesn't kill people with a knife. He uses a homemade flamethrower. <laughs> and it actually ends up being much more disturbing and much more visceral than your typical slasher because of that. Like the first scene in the film where he uses a flamethrower, it's pretty messed up uh, just watching him burn people alive with this flamethrower. Um, but I love this movie. You know, I have the soundtrack on vinyl. I just think it's great. Um, I actually really appreciate films like this that have sort of a mean streak because as much as I do love like the Friday, the 13th movies and the campy gore and that I, I also equally appreciate movies like this that are willing to take like a more realistic and clinical approach to how they portray violence. I definitely understand why a lot of people do not like that um, because it is intentionally uncomfortable and not wanting to be exposed to that is completely valid. Um, and you can also probably tell this is like pretty similar to psycho. It's a guy with mommy issues in a mansion that kills women. Uh, but mm if I really had to compare it to another film, it is extremely similar. Well, I don't want to, no, no, no. Uh, Maniac is not available to be picked. So I can say it's very similar to Maniac to the point that hmm. had they not been released a few months apart, I would say Maniac is completely ripping off this film. Um, wow. They have a scene that is just so similar. I'm very curious as to why that is. Like maybe they're referencing something earlier that I just haven't seen, but it's, it's eerily similar. Um, yeah. So bit of a tangent, but <laughs> no, no, don't go in the house. It's like a great last hurrah for the final days of the exploitation film. Um, it's got some great performances, great effects, great score. Uh, and the guy that directed it, Joseph Ellison, unfortunately never did anything. He did like one other movie. Um, so that's that's a shame but this is also on tubi but unfortunately they have one of the weird tv dubbed versions of it uh, so if you do want to watch it i suggest picking up a disc i can't really tell you which one because there's so many different versions that i don't have it memorized it's the blade runner of obscure slashers <laughs> <laughs> awesome well no i mean please don't ever feel bad about going on a tangent especially as you're the only one of us who have seen that movie so we're sort of leaning on you to discuss it. So. That's, right. That's what I figured. That's why That's right. I prepared so much so that it wasn't just, okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that is a great pick. Um, I'm now on the clock with the final pick of the first round. So here's the thing. I don't know how you both feel about these films as like a whole, but to me, there was not a lot that was like cream of the crop that I was like, oh, I definitely want to get this early. It felt like a lot of this was like in that more middle range to me. And certainly there's a range there somewhere, you know, better than others. But nothing was really like standing out as like a definitive, like I got to get this early. Uh, however, I mean, there there is one film on here that uh, I have seen, that I own, that I really love that stars a classic scream queen 
perhaps the, one of the most classic there is in Jamie Lee Curtis. Mm-hmm. And that film is Terror Train. Uh, nice. I believe 1980. I am so sorry. And this is very unprofessional of me because I did not have the date pulled up. Right that sounds now. right. <laughs> it sounds right to me, too. A couple years after. Yes, 1980. <laughs> um, this also uh, stars uh, uh, David Blaine uh, in this as the magician, which is another very. Copperfield. Uh, it's, oh Jesus Christ! <laughs> Damn. Yes, David Copperfield. Thank you for correcting me. Uh, as the magician in this film, which is just, I, I remember the first time watching it and being like, "Oh wow, okay, he's in this too." Uh, excellent. A lot. Um, a lot. Yeah. Like he's he's not just like one scene where there's a magician on the train. Like he's he's around quite a bit. Um, this is another film that perhaps some of the aspects of it have not aged as well, <laughs> particularly like the drag aspects of it. And, you know, things like that, the, the horrible prank that they pull on, on um, the, the victim in the beginning who, mm-hmm. you know, comes back later as the killer. So, you know, there's certainly aspects of it that haven't aged, but um, in the parlance of with Gorley and Russ, it's an incredibly cozy uh, slasher film here from 1980. I mean, mm-hmm. The idea of like a class trip on a, a on a on a train sounds like a blast. Like, oh, that's wonderful. Uh, you know, I haven't ridden a train in in ages. Uh, last time we did it was when uh, it was basically like one of those little ones you do to bring kids on it to go see. They do this thing called the Polar Express up here, where you just take the train for like thirty minutes to this other yeah. town, and you you know you get to ride in it for a little bit, and then go visit Santa Claus and come back, kind of thing. Uh, so I mean I, I I mean there's just something so romantic about like riding a train, uh, you know whether that's for a long trip or, or a short one, and and uh, it's a fun and unique uh, setting as well for a slasher film, which is one of the big uh, draws for me to this because you see a lot of the same stuff over and over, uh, often within a lot of horror, but specifically the, mm-hmm. the slasher genre. So it's it's nice yeah. to see some kind of fun and unique settings and. Uh, and Terror Train is uh, is one that I'm a big fan of. I have it on Laserdisc. It's somewhere. Oh yeah. So yeah. Nice. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's my my first round pick. And uh, well, folks, I'm back on the board here for um, the back to back here. The first pick of the second round. And I'm just I'm just gonna apologize in general as it takes me a minute or two to to think about which one I want to pick because again I didn't put these in order because I just didn't have a definitive <laughs> I got to get this one in front of this you know order to them. Well, I think it's actually because they're all just so good. It's an embarrassment <laughs> of riches. That's true. They are. So good. You know what? I am gonna pick one that was of all my first time watches in preparation for this film. This was probably my one I, I dug the most and I vibed with the most. This is also from 1980. I am taking Fade to Black, uh, which is about nice. a movie obsessed uh, uh, guy who. Um, how would you describe it? I guess just you know has a little bit of goes a little too deep and just starts. To, killing people who have wronged him i guess is the yeah. best way to put it 
Just your average letterboxed user. <laughs> yeah, your typical film bro in 1980. This is, you know, it just goes a little too far. Um, this was really fun. This was like, um, it's one I'd wanted to see for a long time. I just had never um, had never gotten around to doing so. And I mean, another, oh, so another thing that just really I loved about this film is he drops a Samuel Fuller reference in it and i'm a huge mm-hmm. sam fuller fan so uh, i think i even posted on instagram like a screenshot of it and the, the the captions of it when he mentioned sam fuller and was like when you're already vibing with a movie and then he drops the sam fuller <laughs> reference <laughs> uh let's see what is it he does the po- he does poster artwork at this like movie rental house and this is we're talking like an actual film warehouse that mm-hmm. probably rented out 16 and 35 millimeter film to places and the, th- these were very common in like the 50s 60s 70s really 60s and 70s and then as home video started to take over in the 80s they like started to to go away um uh, but he does like the poster artwork for it uh and basically after his aunt dies but his aunt who was raising him because his parents uh had previously passed away and she's horribly abusive to him really just a shitty person uh to him after he uh she dies uh well partially thanks to him uh he basically has a mental break and just sort of goes on a Mm -hmm. uh, killing spree with everyone who has who has wronged him and uh yeah it's just gosh i feel so dumb just saying that it was just a fun, enjoyable <laughs> watch, but that is pretty much what it is. I, uh, you know, the, the, I can't think of. There's not anything much deeper, <laughs> at least that I pulled from it. You know, watching it. Um, but uh, yeah, there yeah, you go. Fade you know, to black. I'm just gonna stop talking. It's uh, another psycho riff in a way, and it is yep. very much. If you are a cinephile, it is a spot the reference type of film. Absolutely. So there's a lot. Mickey Rourke. A young Mickey Rourke yeah. is in it. Um, yeah, this is what I watched this in preparation. I hadn't seen it before. I think it got a release on one of those labels pretty recently. So I've seen a lot of people talk about it. Um, I thought it was pretty good, but I did have some, some issues with either the script or the way they edited it because there is a subplot about Tim Thomerson from Trancers. Oh yeah, <laughs> being a detective, <laughs> and that but there's like a thirty or forty minute stretch where you don't see him, and I actually forgot he was in the movie, which yeah is a testament to like how engaging the movie is at times, but also like how shoehorned that part of the film felt. Now, okay, so I have a clarifying question: Was he actually a detective, or is he like someone from social services who is trying to help? the people uh, like uh, like like teen convicts and he was paired up with that woman detective so he was not he was not a cop he was some sort of auxiliary like support that of course like the chief of police is like psychology is bullshit like yeah (laughs) that sort of thing yeah it's basically like oh you you wouldn't want us to lock any of them up basically you're some lily livered pansy who wants to <laughs> care about people or something you know this is like that sort of message but also that, that was the other thing i can't believe i didn't mention him the scene 
where he's doing coke while he's waiting in the room for the woman <laughs> officer to get back and she spies him doing it. Like his mannerisms in that scene were like phenomenal. I mean, I agree. His character did not need to be in this movie, like really almost right. in any way, shape or form. But I just loved Tim Thomerson and his performance in it. So I was just on board uh, seeing him in the film. <laughs> yeah, it also stars, I don't know the actor's name, but he plays Eddie in the It miniseries, I think. Oh, like the grown-up. Uh, yeah, grown-up Eddie. And I had never uh, seen him in anything gotcha, gotcha, other gotcha. than It. So that was, I mean, that was kind of interesting for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, let me pull up his name because I feel like we're we're talking so much about this movie. I should at least name the uh, the actor Dennis Christopher. Oh, yeah. And he plays the character of uh, Eric Benford, uh, the main character in the film. Uh, yes. <laughs> All right. Well, that is fade to black, uh, and that was the first pick of the second round. But now Chris is up with the second pick of the second round. Yeah, so I'm I'm very glad because there are only two out of my five that I could have possibly imagined you guys picking. Uh, this is one of them. This is the only one that was mentioned when I asked people like, hey, which of these are good? And we're talking about 10 to Midnight from 1983. <laughs> uh, so this is a film directed by Jay Lee Thompson, who I wouldn't be surprised if he showed up for a different movie on somebody else's list, uh, but he's a personal favorite of mine. He's probably best known for the original Cape Fear from 1962, but he also directed Conquest of the Planet of the Apes and Death Wish 4, which are two of my favorite entries and two of my favorite franchises. I mean, I think it's pretty impressive if you can just come in, do the fourth movie of a franchise like he did, and it's one of the best ones. But uh, 10 to Midnight, like Death Wish 4, is one of the nine times that uh, J. Lee Thompson collaborated with Charles Bronson. Um, this movie stars Charles Bronson. He's an LAPD detective named Leo Kessler. He has a hotshot rookie partner, and they are hot on the trail of a serial killer whose MO is to strip naked and kill young women. Somewhere along the line, Charles Bronson's daughter gets mixed up in it all. And when Bronson feels like the legal red tape is getting in the way of him putting this killer in jail, he goes outside the boundaries of the law to do what needs to be done. I mean, that's classic Bronson, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. one of the, the frequent criticisms of slashers is that they are ideologically conservative Especially if you look at them through like the Carol J. Clover final girl lens where, you know, the virginal chaste girl who doesn't have sex or does drugs is the one who survives and sort of reifies patriarchal patriarchal gender roles. But <laughs> 10 to Midnight is an extremely reactionary film because it's basically like, hey, what if Death Wish was a slasher? Um, the message of the film is basically like, bureaucracy laws and the bill of rights are preventing law enforcement from meeting out justice and presenting preventing criminals from doing crimes um i think a uh, friend of the cast bones put it if you could just shoot all the criminals there would be no crime 
That's yeah. basically <laughs> what this movie is about. But yeah. <laughs> what's interesting about the way that it unfolds is that the audience knows like within the first 10 minutes of the movie who the killer is, which is important because if the audience doesn't know that, everything that Charles Bronson does for the rest of the movie is just absolutely insane. <laughs> because like like there's another cut of this movie that's like just about Charles Bronson framing some dude and ruining his life. Um yes. I love it. I love the naked chase scenes. Love the Charles Bronson of it all. I love the cat and mouse game that sort of gets reversed halfway through the movie. Um it's another one that people might not consider a slasher, but who cares? This this movie rules. Um it's a canon film, so even if it is technically a thriller, you can bet that it's like sleazier than your average thriller. Um, it's, it's got Wilford Brimley in it. It's got Jeffrey Lewis in it. And I'm pretty sure the movie I was talking about at the beginning, Lesson of the Evil, directly references two scenes from this movie, oh, which I gotcha. thought was like, could just be because I watched them in close proximity, but I, there's just no way that it didn't happen. Um <laughs> If you are one of the very small Venn diagram overlap of people that have seen both of those movies, please let me know. <laughs> but yeah, it sounds like you at least you have seen this, Brantley. Yeah, I've not yeah, seen I, this. I, I, I'd seen it previously, and then I rewatched it for uh, this podcast in preparation because it had been just so long. And um, somewhere in the other part of the basement, I got the big box VHS of it. But uh, oh, jealous, uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure I still have it. I don't think I, I sold it. Maybe, oh, shoot. Maybe that was one of the ones I sent to Matt McCarthy. I don't know. Anyway, if I have it, I'll send it to you if you want. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, if I if I find it. If, assuming <laughs> that's one I didn't send to Matt McCarthy, I'll, I'll go grab it and send it to you. But uh, I think what held me back from picking it was its uber conservative <laughs> philosophy basically like it is a really well-made film i agree and like the 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 setup like you mentioned is great it's kind of like a columbo episode in which mm -hmm. like you know who the killer is like f like right from the beginning basically uh and it's just a matter of like can charles bronson like catch him you yeah know, in the same way it's like can columbo you know solve the mystery sort of thing or how how is columbo gonna solve the mystery um yeah, but 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 the politics of the movie are a little. Hmm. Okay. I mean, I agree. Bronson plays him great, and it's directed well and everything. But uh, but yeah, I just it was tough to tough to select this film just on that just on that level. I that guess. perfectly valid. Perfectly valid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a part of what, where he just flat out like uh, fabricates evidence. Yeah. Yep just frames the dude which you're right like if we didn't see this guy as the killer he would just come up like a sociopathic cop <laughs> who's just fucking people over left and right yeah yeah so someone should make a fan edit where that happens because <laughs> i'd love to see that yeah if if fade to black has a taste of this from the like chief in the mm -hmm. film this is like <laughs> All the way throughout the police force, almost everyone you talk to, except for that rookie mm -hmm. detective he's paired with, essentially has that philosophy. Uh, and you sort yeah. of get a sense that the rookie detective sort of comes to Bronson's side a little bit by the <laughs> end. Like he's lost some of his idealism. 
Yeah, like even Bronson's daughter is kind of like that because there's a scene where after Bronson has been uh, disgraced, they're watching it on TV and his daughter's like, that guy's such an asshole. And she's talking about the cop that didn't go along with him framing this guy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, (laughs) yes, it's a good, well-made movie, but yeah, the politics of it are, are wild. There is also (laughs) a legendary, uh, interrogation scene that never fails to get a laugh from me. Um, yeah. Charles Bronson and a sex toy. That's all I'm going to say about it. There you go. That's a selling point for you. If, if I'm not doing it and Chris hasn't convinced you, there you go. <laughs> all right. Um, well, Nick, you are up here with the final pick of the second round, but of course you'll get the back-to-back in the first of the third. So what are you going to pick for the second round? Yeah, I'm just going to continue going down my list, so these are not necessarily in any order. Um, but... Uh, especially because I have the back-to-back. I'm, I'm safe to get another one after. But I have to circle back real quick and say, I had to look up Dennis Christopher. Sorry. I had to look that up when you said <laughs> And I knew I knew his name. Uh, he's plays Dave Stoller. He stars in Breaking Away, which is like one of my all-time favorite mm. like coming-of-age movies. It's a classic. It's incredible. Yes. Um, and that's why I know him. Okay. So that was driving me crazy. And he got a Golden Globe nomination for that film. For Breaking Away. That makes sense. For Breaking Away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. For New new Star of the Year, which is like something they did in the 70s. Like Arnold Schwarzenegger, I think, was nominated or maybe even won a Golden Globe for like New Star of the Year for Stay Hungry, the movie with Jeff Bridges and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I guess I just slept on Dennis Christopher. Up until recently, I didn't realize that the cast of the miniseries was like a who's who of television actors yeah yeah like i only saw them in that other than uh the guy that also played the dad and sister sister i had seen him in that but (laughs) i had no idea who richard thomas was until like the past five years i've seen a lot of made for tv movies with them in it and it's like oh he was like this huge tv star so i guess that's just me that didn't know who dennis christopher was (laughs) no i i I mean i can't say i would finger on like i knew the name and that was it but of course breaking away so good yeah and then of course he, he was in chariots of fire uh the year after oh, that's right as well in 81 so he did have a part in that as well um yeah sorry i mean i i i don't want to pretend like i knew everything about dennis christopher it was more like i recognized this guy kind of i'm much better with faces than names and stuff and uh yeah anyway so anyway, I think, sorry, Nick. No, it's, I'm dedicating my list tonight to Dennis Christopher. Hell my yeah. My five obscure slasher films. These are for you, Dennis. If you're I hope you're listening. <laughs> He's a big listener. I, I, he, I hope Isn't so. He? I hope so. Yeah. And I, you know, because of his, you know, his, unfortunately he's passed, but I'm dedicating mine to Charles Bronson, oh. uh, who <laughs> shares a birthday with me. Oh, oh so nice. This is to you, Charles Bronson. <laughs> All right, sorry, All right. Nick. Sorry, no, don't ahead. be. No, I, I, I that was did my that. bad Charles Bronson. I put it at the end. No, that was uh, imitation. That was perfect. That was no. I, I did that to us. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah. So my pick for number two is a movie called. Actually, what year is it from? Nineteen eighty-eight. Um, Edge of the X. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. Which. Uh, which was a movie it was like <laughs> again another one i saw for the first time for this for this episode um you know again with all of these like obscure slashers i think 
of all the subgenres of you know in not even just in horror and film i think like the ones that follow a formula are this genre and mm-hmm. um so you know what can i say about this movie versus other ones i mean we can go for the bad things first it has a completely unearned twist ending um <laughs> that it doesn't deserve at all and doesn't make sense it the logic of the whole movie is ridiculous um you know it's just it, it it's a very middle of the road slasher um some terrible kill scenes with an axe where she is clearly <laughs> hitting people with the back end of a dull toy um and i'm like I, I i was fully expecting them to cut away because they always do in 80s movies where an axe is involved but no they to their credit they actually show the axe striking the victims quite a bit hmm. um it's hmm. just like the wrong end of the axe and nothing happens <laughs> um so those are the bad things what good things does it have going for it a really good sense of place i really like the setting hmm. a small rural town um they do a really good job with 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 that and and really with shooting it and framing it and um the performances aren't bad um but the best thing i will say about this the reason to see this movie is the cold open which is a very memorable cold open for two reasons one it is a kill that takes place in the stupidest of all places i've ever seen a slasher movie kill and i just give them credit for that in the middle of a car wash while a woman is driving through the car wash in broad daylight. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just actually really well executed. Like the, the that scene is just put together in a very, very competent way. So that makes it even funnier. But the best part of that scene is right before they cut to the credits and they show the woman's body leaning against the car window with all the soap dripping down. They hold the shot for the entire length of the film, really. I mean, like, you are done. You're like, oh, they're going to cut away now, right? We've seen that she's dead. No, it goes on for another 45 minutes. They hold on this woman just leaning against the window. It's so uncomfortable. It is so... Like, I can't overstate how long they hold on this shot of this woman not doing anything except for leaning on the window dead. It's incredible. It's incredible. See the movie just for that. I've never seen anything like it. Wow. That's all I can say about Edge of the X. Yeah. That's great. You know, I didn't rewatch this for this, but I'd seen it a few years ago for the first time. I think it was a little while after, I think Arrow yeah. put it out, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And so I watched it on some service it was on, and and I actually had a good time with it. I had no idea how much computer stuff was going to be in this movie, considering oh, yeah. the fact that, wow. <laughs> considering the like artwork and the description, yeah. I was like, did not expect computers to play such a big uh, part in the storyline of this film. I'm sold. And it felt... It felt a little ahead of its time, you know, for what year was this, Nick? Do you recall? 88. For 88. Yeah. yeah for, well, I mean, I don't know. I guess war games and shit had come out. Maybe not that ahead of its time, but it was it was surprising. This one <laughs> no, is I mean, that, Spanish, is it not? The entire uh, cast and crew, yes, was, was basically. Yeah. Although IMDb lists the director as Jose Ramon Larraz, and he's credited differently, at least in the version of the movie that I saw which was interesting. Um, I think he's credited oh. as Joseph. Um, but yes, otherwise, like, the entire cast... Not the cast, the entire crew seemed to be Spanish. Gotcha. Yeah, I actually haven't seen this one. Um, I would say up until Arrow put it out, this was extremely hard to watch, like a pretty obscure yeah. movie, but I always remembered the cover with sort of, like, the uh, 
Kirkland, Jason Voorhees on yeah. the front. <laughs> yeah. But now that I know there's a bunch of computers in it, I'm much more interested. Nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a... Oh, okay, yes. This guy... All right, so Jose Ramon Larraz, he is credited as a bunch of different things. He directed Vampires 1974 uh, with the Y, Vampires, uh, which I have seen, and that's why I know his name. But he's credited as Joseph Bronstein for this movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah so yeah, yeah. um but I yeah yeah a lot of computers taking... much of the runtime yeah. is just <laughs> looking at computer screen text and then having a disembodied computer voice repeat the words that you're staring at on screen um, oh man it's i good think stuff. this might end up being the steel even though i haven't actually <laughs> seen the movie oh, oh yeah you should check it out <laughs> yeah oh a blast all blast. right nick all right. That was your second round pick, but uh, what are you going to pick to rival Edge of the Axe for your third round pick? Actually, I actually think I have a good one. This one I really nice. do. I think this one's a clear step up from Edge of the Axe. Um, okay. No, it's it's not, but it's way more fun. Um, this is 1989's Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge. Um, which I have not seen this. Uh, neither had I until this week, and I'm so glad that I picked this one as one of the ones I was able to fit in. Um, it's, I mean, it's it's a Phantom of the Opera story about a boy, a, you know, a high school kid basically who um, is burned to death in his house while or shortly after having sex with his girlfriend, but she escapes, and the turns out the reason the house burned down, and I'm not giving anything away, it's like first 10 minutes of the movie is arson because they wanted to a commercial real estate developer wants to build a mall there um but did he die i'm not sure because when the mall opens people start dying Mm. i know and there's a shadowy figure who seems to be roaming around the mall offing people left and right (laughs) who might that be well probably eric it's in the title um (laughs) oh but i was thinking uh, the girlfriend like for revenge yes yeah yeah well you know i'm not gonna give away the ending um (laughs) i mean this is uh uh, the premise and everything about it is terrible um and i you know i think it's supposed to be it's a pretty tongue-in-cheek thing um but it's executed like it had i looked it up it's like it got a two million dollar budget and for a slasher movie in 89 um that's nothing to sneeze at um yeah it's it's feels like a lot yeah i think so it's made it's made well it's made very well i mean it's lit really well um the cinematography is good the effects are great pretty much around the around the um just like front to back i was actually impressed with like the makeup effects um there's some really good stunts in it like actually good stunt work um and yeah and it's a lot of fun but um if i haven't sold you yet Polly shore plays a pretty big role mm-hmm. um Whoa. and yes and like the first 25 to 30 minutes of the movie i was like really refreshed because like this is like a young Polly shore who wasn't Polly shore yet and he's playing like a real character in a real way as a real actor but by the end of the movie rest assured he's full Polly shore again um <laughs> the weasel comes out he does big time um yeah the weasel comes out um <laughs> I mean, this movie was a. I had a blast with this movie. Like, I this actually, I, I would, of all the obscure slashers that I think I've seen, um, this one might be the most consistently fun to watch. This would be a great movie to watch in a group. Nice. Yeah. 
Nice. Yeah, I haven't seen this. I'm pretty sure it was what was it Vinegar Syndrome put it out a year or two ago. The oh, only I thing I knew, what, I thought Polly Shore was like barely in it, but now that I know he's in it more, I might check it out. Oh yeah, he's definitely. I mean, he's a supporting character, but he's got he's got a lot of screen time. All right, Nick. I love how these last two picks of yours were both. Uh, they're so bad, they're fun. Essentially, to uh, it, watch. yeah, they are. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, that is Nick's pick for the third round, but that means Chris, you are on the board with your third round selection. I am super excited with the way this draft has gone because I now know, like, with reasonable certainty, like, I get to pick all five of my movies <laughs> without having to worry about someone stealing them. Uh, but there, there's one film that I'm really just shocked hasn't been picked yet. Um, I'm talking about a horror movie from the 1980s that came out of nowhere and revolutionized the genre. I'm talking about a movie known for its over-the-top gore. I'm talking about a movie about a group of people who go out into the middle of the woods and get trapped in a building. There might be some there might be something evil out there. There might even be something dead out there. A lot of people may argue that it's not a slasher movie, but I'm picking it anyway. That's right, folks. You know what it is. I'm drafting the horror classic, Evil Dead, Trap. Damn it! Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Had you guys going there for a second, didn't I? Uh, I uh, Wonderful pick. I'm very disappointed. I'm glad you've seen this. Um, yeah, this is not the Sam Raimi cult classic. Uh, Evil Dead, Trap is a Japanese film from 1988 directed by Toshiaru Ikeda. Uh, he directed quite a few films, but nothing you'd really know unless you're pretty deep into V-cinema or Japanese cinema more generally. And despite the title of the film, this movie has nothing to do with Evil Dead. I think it was just all a marketing thing for English-speaking audiences. I'm not really sure. The original title, Shirio no Wana, is like closer to Spirit Trap or Ghost Trap. Which also really has nothing to do with this movie. Because <laughs> there are no spirits or ghosts in it. Um, what this movie is actually about is a television crew that receives a mysterious videotape in the mail. And contained on that tape is footage of a woman being murdered in a remote warehouse. And there's also footage that shows the directions to said warehouse. Um, this television crew... They produce some sort of like late night news show and it's in danger of being canceled due to low ratings. So rather than bringing the video to the cops, they decide to go to this warehouse where they saw someone get murdered on tape. And uh, wouldn't you know it, they start getting picked off one by one. Um, now, again, this one may not be all that slashery because the killer in the film uses a series of elaborate traps instead of a knife or a chainsaw or anything like that. Someone gets impaled by a bunch of metal spikes. Uh, someone gets like an arrow shot at them. Someone gets snared with a metal noose. There's all sorts of crazy stuff in this, and the effects are pretty gnarly. Um, the guy that did the effects, Shinichi Wakasa, he also did the special effects and some suit work for every Godzilla film from 
Mecha Godzilla 2 all the way up to Final Wars. So that's probably like a good 10 year, if not more, stretch. I can't think of that off the top of my head, but uh, he also did prop work on a movie that's a personal favorite from mine from 1992 called The Cat, which is a movie from Hong Kong. Um, I wrote down the IMDb description for the movie The Cat because it is a cat from outer space, teams up with a young girl and an old man to fight a murderous alien that possesses people. And even that doesn't do it justice. It's, it's an insane film. Uh, but uh, back to Evil Dead Trap. Um, I think there's a lot to love about this one. It has some great cinematography. There's some beautiful like shot on film slow motion, which just, I love that. You don't really see it the way that they did it in the 80s and 90s. You don't see that really at all anymore, but I just... I'm a sucker for that. Um, there's like a lot of like Hitchcock counter dolly zoom in it. There's some interesting tracking shots where like the camera follows like a trip wire that's attached to one of these elaborate traps. It's a very good looking movie for the budget, which I think was around like 200,000 US. Um, it's also one of the first movies that sort of got me into this particular strand of Japanese cinema. And I think it is like a good introduction because there are parts of it that feel very familiar for Western genre fans. Um, like, you know, it, it is sort of similar to evil dead. Like we're going to go to this place in the woods and a bunch of crazy shit's going to happen. But there's also a lot of stuff that will feel fresh to someone that may not be familiar with these type of movies. Um, it's got a lot of hallmarks of Japanese films from this time, like insane practical effects, Part of the cast is like adult video stars that they were trying to like put in mainstream vehicles and a final act that just pops off to to compare it to something that more people would be familiar with. I would honestly I would honestly say that the current trend that we've been seeing in horror movies for the past few years with movies like Malevolent or Barbarian, where there's like that mm. surprise reveal slash tonal shift uh pretty late in the movie i it really reminds me of japanese films from the time like from this time like evil dead trap um i would say in in japanese movies it's generally played more straighter than or played straighter than something like barbarian or malevolent but this movie has like 20 minutes at the end where that are hinted at but you don't really expect them coming um definitely came as a surprise to me the first time i saw it Again, you know, maybe debatable whether it's not whether or not it's a pure slasher, but I just wouldn't feel right filling out a draft without some East Asian representation. Um, and it's uh, it's on Amazon Prime. Um, I will say that there's like a three to four minute scene of sexual assault, which unfortunately is pretty common for a lot of movies from this time and place. And in this case, it's completely unnecessary to the story. So, you know. Be aware of that if you do want to watch it but yeah evil dead trap there you go uh i have not seen this it sounds like nicks has i just want to say that chris it doesn't matter if other people would say it's <laughs> not a slasher you're the commissioner you get the final say so y no one's stopping you from picking it because you're the boss basically oh they can try to stop me i'm still picking <laughs> evil dead trap there you go nick do you want to talk about it before we move on 
Oh yeah, yeah. I'd say undoubtedly it's a it's a slasher. Um, I'm disappointed in myself because when you were talking about your love of Japanese <laughs> cinema at the very beginning of the episode, I should have seen this coming and picked this earlier. Um, you, you covered so much of what I loved about this movie, this cinematography, um, the uh, the final act, of course. Um, the score is great. I mean, what this movie really felt like to me, um, and I, I went online and, and read some reviews um, from the late 80s when it came out, and, and I know they it also got comparisons to Jalo movies. Um, and, it, and the score mm-hmm. is a humongous part of this. I mean, like, the score yeah. seems like Goblin could have easily done it. Um, mm-hmm. And it's got the whole, you know, the mystery of who's doing it, and it's just like... A sense of location and stuff that reminded me a lot of um, the what little familiarity I have with Jalo, but um, mm. um, and yeah, the it's just it's so creatively shot. There's like this weird kinetic energy to it in yeah. in some places, um, and yeah, like I didn't even put it together until you were talking about it just now. But I think I would draw a parallel to Malignant, James Wan's movie. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of subject matter wise and, and feel yeah. uh, just like a feel of it. Um, I feel like that malignant owes a lot to this. And um, I, yeah, I like this movie so much. I, I know there's a sequel, which is not supposed to be as highly regarded, Two, but I'm like actually tempted. Oh, are there really? Yeah. Right. There's one evil dead trap to Hideki. And then there's one that's called the brutal insanity of love, which doesn't really have anything to do with it. It's just like, we're going to call it evil dead trap three to sell some tapes mm. type. thing. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, is the second one worth seeing? Because it's I can it's streaming now, and I should. Watch I actually it. haven't watched it. Um, like three years ago, I ordered a DVD from some random place because you couldn't find it anywhere, and I just like I ripped it and never watched it. Okay, okay. But I I have have heard that the second one's actually like pretty good. So. Okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah, that's a great. I mean, it was a great pick. I. It was a big surprise for me. Um. I also had been reading about this movie since I was in middle school and I was a huge Evil Dead fan. Mm-hmm. And so when I saw this listed in a horror movie book I owned, I was like, how is this related to one of my favorite movies? And of course it wasn't. <laughs> um, but it took me years and years yeah, to finally I get around to watching it. Apart from the very broad premise of people in a building in the woods, the only other thing I could draw a parallel to Evil Dead with is that there are some sort, like some of those like, Ramy cam esque moments of like something zooming through the woods. That's true. There's, There's some, some of that, yeah. but it still it doesn't really feel like obviously they were probably informed by Evil Dead in some way, but it doesn't feel like they're just like trying to do Evil Dead. If that makes sense. Oh yeah, no, it mu- it feels much more like a slasher. But I mean, well, like Evil Dead, it does star human beings and it takes place <laughs> in a building. So what's yeah. <laughs> that? Anyway. All right. Great pick. Well, that, yeah, great pick by Chris. That is his third round pick. Uh, that means I am up with the final pick of the third round, and then I get the back to back here with the first pick of the fourth round. Uh, I, Commissioner, am going to propose a selection that was not on your list. I, I didn't think of many slashers that weren't on this list because it's a very comprehensive list. I thought P2, maybe. <laughs> Wasn't on, but no, it had more than twenty thousand, so I couldn't pick that. But there's a film from 2012 uh, called Black Rock, 
starring and directed by Katie Azelton, written by her husband, Mark Duplass, hmm. uh, also starring Lake Bell and Kate Bosworth, about uh, three friends, two of them are estranged from each other, who go on a trip to an island, like an island camping trip, only to run into three hunters who are also on the island, and it becomes a sort of most dangerous game-esque battle in which um i don't want to give things away but some of the 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 hunters are chasing after them basically uh and you might say well hang on a sec uh is that really a slasher because uh they have guns because they're hunting and and i'd say the slasher films have always used guns as a threat and as long as there's knives and sharp instruments used to also do a lot of stabbing which there is in this film in my mind, that makes it still a slasher because genres are fake and we don't mm-hmm. need to gatekeep silly things like that. <laughs> but I will say the commissioner has final say. I have no idea if you've seen this film, but I, I wanted to run it by you because I need approval from the commissioner yeah. to choose this. I will say that it, that's completely fine. Um, so I mentioned reading the the book going to pieces, um, and mm. in the first the first chapter is titled like "What is a slasher." And he lays out like several criteria of what is a slasher. He's not saying that they're hard and fast rules, but just that most slashers have some of these components. One of the things he said that I really didn't agree with, because I already picked a movie where a guy kills people with flamethrowers, is that (laughs) as a rule, slashers use edged weapons and don't use explosives or or traps. I also picked a movie where (laughs) a guy uses traps, but... Yeah, he says they don't use guns, but you immediately think about something like the Scream franchise, which I don't think Mm -hmm. anyone could reasonably argue that they aren't slashers, but I'm not like super familiar with the movies. I've seen like the first four, but I believe multiple ghost faces use guns, right? Oh, yeah. Yes. Certainly in the finales, they get used as ways to uh, threaten people. Absolutely. Yeah, so that's completely fine with me i i don't factor that in at all awesome. your pick is valid yes nick have you seen black rock no i never heard of it actually oh okay i i remember watching it when it first came out um probably when it came to video in i imagine later 2012 or 2013 something like that and uh really enjoying it and i rewatched it for this episode it's a very grounded you know very like realistic sort of approach to to this type of film it it's not over the top in any of the way like a, a lot of the the picks so far have been that just come from that 80s <laughs> you know sensibility that are just a little over the top or silly um so if you're looking for a more like grounded uh modern approach to uh a slasher and a, and a much lesser known slasher i would i would say blackrock uh may be for you I do want to put the caveat that this also deals with a sexual assault during part of the film. So if that is something that um, may be triggering or something that you don't want to watch, uh, just be warned that that is a part of the film. It, um, not to Again, not to spoil, but since I've already talked about it, that becomes the catalyst of why um, the hunters begin to come after um, the women, basically. Um, so there you go. That's Blackrock, directed by Katie Azelton, starring her, Lake Bell, and Kate Bosworth. So nice, nice. That's my third round pick. Uh, 
I am gonna follow that up with uh ba -ba 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 -ba. see this is where this is where it's not as clear to me <laughs> which, which direction I could go um I'm gonna stay modern I'm gonna stay in <clears throat> the new millennium I'm gonna take a first time watch I hadn't seen this before I'm gonna take creep from 2004 uh mm. set in england and the tube was uh what they what is it uh is it the tube they call it the yeah. tube there yeah all right all right perfect uh, uh basically uh have, have either of you seen it i have not but i am familiar with it okay all right nick have you seen it no okay um the premise is that there's like a a, a late office party uh, that's going late. One of the women there is leaving the office because she's trying to catch George Clooney, who's in town uh, at some event or whatever. It's a sort of like silly premise to leave the party and uh, catch the two. But it's like the last train, basically, that she's catching uh, through a sequence, a series of events. Um, uh, uh, she ends up being on this last train. It stops. There is some thing down in the bowels of this uh, subway system that is hunting her, uh, picking off other people that are there, uh, you name it. And um, speaking of films that are very barbarian-esque, I got lots of barbarian vibes uh, from this film um, when I was watching it. I think it's a very well-made film. Um, you know, it looks really good. I think there's strong performances throughout. A lot of the special effects and makeup look really good. Um, so, um, if you want a creepy film about being stuck in the subway station overnight and being hunted by a something that's uh, down there, uh, this might be up your alley. Yeah, I have only I've heard really good things about this. Um, it is interesting that you follow up a movie written by Mark Duplass with another movie called Creep. Oh, yes. I know. <laughs> yes. Um, yes, we should clarify. This is not the Mark Duplass yeah. Creep movie. This is a totally different one. <laughs> but yeah, I really considered watching this uh, for this in preparation for the cast, but I had gotten the impression that it was maybe sort of a creature feature. I'm not sure if that's true, but... I was like, you know, I am already picking so many things that aren't slashers by the strictest of definition. I'll just, I'll leave that one to the side, but gotcha. I do want to watch it. Yeah, I thought it was maybe a bit of a creature feature too, and I'm just going to be vague and say that I think it fits the slasher genre without giving anything away. Fair enough. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. So that was the first pick of the fourth round, but Chris, that means you're on here with the uh, second pick of the fourth round. You were on the clock, sir. Oh, boy. <laughs> this is one that I really debated whether or not I should draft for reasons that will become apparent very shortly. But this movie has just stuck with me in a way that very few have, so I've just got to draft 1979's Giallo in Venice. Um so once again, based on the title, you may be thinking that's a giallo, not a slasher. But I ask you this, what is a slasher if not an American version of a giallo? So uh 
you know, they Giallo's kind of had their heyday in the mid 60s to mid 70s. Giallo and Venice came later in that cycle. So basically, rather than trying to do anything new, it sort of just decided to do everything that Gialli were known for, but just do it 10 times harder. Um, and it was released on December 31st, 1979, which I, I think is kind of poetic. It's sort of both literally and figuratively a death knell for the golden age of Gialli. Um <laughs> You know, within the first 15 seconds of the film, a man gets brutally stabbed with a pair of scissors before the film hard cuts to some swinging Italian jazz music. And what this is about really isn't all that important. Uh, The gist of it is the same as a lot of Giallo films. Someone's murdering people. A detective is trying to figure out who the killer is. There's a bunch of twists and turns. Um... The reason I really went back and forth on whether or not I wanted to talk about this film is that it is one of the most eminently unrecommendable films I think I've ever seen. Uh, 35 minutes of the hour and 30 minute hour and 38 minute runtime is like scenes of uncomfortable sexual content up to and including sexual assault. Um, And beyond that, the violence is very extreme and often uncomfortably so. There's like a very nihilistic and misanthropic feeling to the whole thing. And so it's not something that I would ever just recommend. Like, hey, check out this movie. Uh, It isn't very good and it's offensive in almost (laughs) every way. (laughs) But I don't know. There's just something about it that I find so interesting. And even though there are so many other Giallo films that are objectively better than this movie, like deep red or opera, or even like the lesser stuff like torso torso is a much better film than this. (laughs) Um, None of them have stuck with me like this movie. So for that, I just had to draft it. I'm sorry to introduce such a downer. Um, (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's, it's yeah i will say this is the only one that i didn't rewatch in preparation for the cast (laughs) if that tells you anything um but one interesting fact about it is that it was nearly lost except it was a film reel was found in the attic of a portuguese dental clinic (laughs) wow couldn't, I want to know that story. Yeah. How that came to yeah, be. Yeah, I couldn't find any <laughs> specifics of it, but I just love that little story. So, yeah, I think. Yeah. It, yeah, based on everything I've said about it, you know if you're going to watch it or not. I don't need to really talk about it anymore. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, that is Chris's fourth round pick. Nick, yep. we're going to you. Last pick of the fourth round and your first pick of the fifth. You are on the clock. All right, uh, fourth round pick. This is a movie that I was surprised to find on this list. Um, maybe because it's more recent, and I I don't know. Um, it's fresher in my mind, and therefore I think it's not obscure, but obviously that is not necessarily the case with anything that's recent. Um, but also it spawned a sequel, which, again, um, these are not mutually exclusive things. I mean, lots of movies that no one sees get sequels all the time um (laughs) it just depends on who is financing them and how much money they have um so um that doesn't 
really disqualified either. But all the same, I feel like a lot of people saw this movie. Um, it's 2009's Laid to Rest. Oh, mm. yep. Um, directed yep. by Robert Hall, which um, is far from my favorite slasher movie. It's far from my favorite horror movie of the last 15, 20 years. Um, but it is a movie that I've seen multiple times, um, and I always have a good time with it. Um, the makeup effects are great. I mean, that's like the... That's what it's famous for, because Rob, Robert Hall was a, a special makeup effect mm. artist. In fact, I think after he... I think this was his featured debut, um, but he continued doing makeup work after in a bunch of movies, including, I think, um, 2018's Halloween. Um, oh, nice. But, um, yeah, and, like, Lena Headey is in it. It's got um, yeah. some recognizable people. Anyway, it's um, it's a really slickly made movie, as many recent slasher films are. Um, it's extremely violent. The makeup effects are great. Um, it's just not a particularly unique movie, um, and it doesn't do anything. It's not, like, a very smart movie. Um, it's just competently made and fun to watch so I've seen it a couple times um, but what I will say about it and I hated the sequel so the sequel is called Chrome Skull mm-hmm. Later S2 mm-hmm. and I was just so disappointed in that but um, what I will say about both movies is that I'm just kind of surprised given movies like Terrifier which we've talked about a lot on this podcast um, mm-hmm. Chrome Skull seemed to me to be a perfect and much more deserving slasher villain icon um certainly more so than something like victor crowley um or you know i i the just it's the look of chrome skull um this the chrome shiny mask he wears he's got two gopros on each shoulder um it, it there was something about that imagery that seemed primed to like become a fixture of slasher movies um you know, the way that Art the Clown did for Terrifier. And I think, like, sure, we've talked about how I think the first Terrifier is very mean-spirited, and I, I didn't think it deserved a sequel, but the second one was great, so I'm, you know, I'm happy they made one. All the same, Art the Clown, I see him everywhere now. And, like, mm. he's got a nice look to him, sure, but how many clown killer movies are there? I mean, a million. <laughs> um, and, again, to be fair, late to rest, how many movies with killers in a mask are there i but there was something about this that i felt like was a missed opportunity that it didn't really become a bigger franchise um that being said i was as much as i hated the second one i was really looking forward to the third one which was in development and unfortunately robert hall died in 2021 um oh. i believe he was like hmm. 47 um or yeah he was 47 he was very young um so i don't know if that's gonna happen i i kind of hope it doesn't now um out of like respect for him um but just super unfortunate because I, I feel like it had potential as a franchise even if the second one kind of squandered that potential um but yeah, yeah. the first one I, I really you know it's a it's a really enjoyable movie like i said I, I most of these movies i wouldn't go back and watch again but this one i have yeah it was do you know Nick if Laid to Rest like did it sit on a shelf before it got released for any amount of time? Because I know it came out in '09, so I, I watched it in prep for this, and I was just shocked to see Lena Headey in it. Yes, yeah, because this is when she was doing like Terminator Sarah Connor Chronicles. Yes, I mean it seems like she would have been like 
out of the reach for a movie like this, especially since she plays a relatively small part in the film. So I was just I was just a little surprised to see her in it. And I don't know if you have any knowledge about the production of the film. Um, no, I don't know if it sat on a shelf or not. Uh, the first time I read about it was probably right before it came out. Um, it was getting some okay. press at that point, but that's obviously not to say that it didn't sit gathering dust for quite a while before that. Okay. Yeah, no, I was just I was just surprised watching it to be like, "Oh shit, Lena Headey's in this?" Yeah. Um because I agree with you, it's not the best slasher movie. Um nothing against Robert Green Hall. I don't think it looks particularly good. I mean, the special effects makeup are great, yeah. but it has a very like video quality look to it. And um and you know, the performance by the main actress there the final girl i wasn't a huge fan of and then you know script wise it yeah <laughs> like the story's a little generic so i mean to, i'm not shitting on your pick that's not what i'm doing at all no just please saying, i like, don't love it either i mean it's not it's okay, yeah yeah it's a it's a it, it, competent it's film. just surprising yeah it's just surprising that this drew the talent of Lena Headey to it, I guess is, is what I'm saying. Uh, Cause I think she's good in it. And I think the main actor uh, in the film, uh, not the killer, but um, Kevin Gage. Yes. Yeah. I think he's, I think he's pretty decent in it as well. I think he does a good job. Um, but, uh, and I agree. I think the look of Chrome skull is like a unique and interesting look. Um but yeah, I was just surprised that Lena Headey was in it. I don't, I'm sorry to keep repeating that. I was just like, <laughs> "Do you know the filmmakers? Were you friends or something? Is this a favor?" Because I was just I was surprised that she was in it. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I forgot Terminator was on the air at this time. Um, yeah, and I really don't know the answer to those questions. <laughs> yeah, no, because Terminator aired in uh, it was a mid season pickup in '08, and then it was airing its second season in '09. So. I have to think she was doing this in between seasons. Probably. Or something. Yeah. You know, something like that. Yeah. Anyway. Have you seen this, Chris? I haven't. Um, I've heard a lot about it, but kind of some of, you know, some of the things Nick mentioned alongside it, like Hatchet. I've always heard about it in that sort of context where no one ever says anything about it other than it has good special effects, which Mm. I do love, but... Um, I think I've kind of seen it all at this point. So you got to give me a little bit something more, you know? Sure. Um, yeah. So I, yeah, I haven't made it around to this one or any of the hatchet films. Um, you know, cause slashers are slashers. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. That was, you know, that's an interesting point that you bring up, not about laid to rest necessarily, but about this, category as a whole um that i was reflecting on as i chose movies which is that this i think maybe more than most other subgenres, is a category that very much is affected by advancements in technical areas of mm-hmm. like makeup effects like i mean it i mean i think it opened the like digital effects also opened the doors to a lot of slasher movies unfortunately because the digital makeup effects mm-hmm. like largely suck across the board um but the advances in just like practical makeup effects are just like leagues and leagues ahead of where they were 
during like maybe the slasher's first heyday or whatever. Um, and it's difficult. I was thinking about this, like to your point, if you're measuring a movie by its kills and by its gore, which I would argue mm-hmm. most slasher fans probably are. I mean, they're looking for creativity and kills. They're not looking for, you know, Shakespearean storytelling. So right. um, it's interesting to then go back to 80s heyday slasher movies and you know expect something particularly special um right you know, unless it's a movie that you grew up with it's like you know the makeup effects are going to be dated sometimes there's a charm to that but it's like okay mm-hmm. either a lot of this stuff is going to happen off screen or it's going to look bad um edge of the axe i'm talking to you um <laughs> and uh so yeah i just think that that's such a fascinating thing like um but on the flip side, like, yeah, Hatchet has really good makeup effects, but I don't like that movie. Um, <laughs> so there still has to be something. And it's like this, like, I don't know, it's like some unnameable quality, I guess. Like, I really expected to go back and watch a bunch of movies I hadn't seen from the 80s and just, you know, for that reason, be like, yeah, I've seen it, been there, done that, I've seen it all, makeup effects wise. Like, this doesn't compare to any of the super gory movies mm-hmm. that are made. But no, there's like a different charm to bad slasher movies. Um, so anyway. That kind of leads into my next pick. Um, nice. I think, kind of naturally, because my next pick is, I just want to double check the year, 1987. Um, yeah, I am picking for my final pick, 1987's Killer Workout, or Aerobicide, I think, as it may be better nice. known. Um, mm. It's just an awful, awful movie, which I own and love. Um, uh why did I first see this movie? Because it was on the 50 cent horror shelf at my local <laughs> video store growing up. And I was like, this should be good for some laughs and weird gratuitous nudity or whatever. So like, why not? I'll check it out. Um, and like, oddly, I mean, it's kind of a parody of all of that. Um, there, at, first of all, there isn't that much nudity, but there's so much, there's like 40 minutes of just aerobics. <laughs> Um, shot in like very provocative ways Um, and like unapologetic and hilarious and over the top and clearly a parody of itself and other movies like it. Um, This is the most 80s slasher movie ever. Um, The soundtrack is unreal. Um, During every aerobic scene, it's just incredible. Uh, Watch it for that alone. But... um, yeah, it's just, it's it's weird. I mean, I think it is very much like a parody of the dead teenager movies, quote-unquote, from, like, the first half of the 80s. Um, but it's really, it, there's a charm to how bad it is, and I think maybe it, that was successful, that, you know, if they were looking to kind of <laughs> make fun of those films, they did a great job. I mean, the weapon of choice is, I think it's supposed to be a letter opener, but it's essentially just a giant safety pin. <laughs> um, it's the most ridiculous looking thing that I've seen. Um, and there's another charm to it, which is that it's just been like essentially lost to time. I mean, even the special edition Blu-ray release says on the back, like we did our best to source the best quality prints of this movie, but there are none. So a lot of it's from a VHS, <laughs> like mm-hmm. it's of that era. And like, it has that charm. So if you like that kind of like bad eighties slasher, aesthetic like this movie is perfect mm. yeah it's a it's a good one have you seen this one Brantley? i have not no i saw another workout themed 
one for this uh, Death Spa. For this episode. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I've never seen. But that. I did not watch Killer Workout. Yeah, uh, I, if I'm remembering correctly, I think the version I saw, like very near the beginning, there's a scene that plays, and then like somehow it skips back and plays that exact same like 15 second scene again. <laughs> So it's, yeah, it's very much that sort of thing going on, and the only wow. the only other time I've seen a giant safety pin like that is at In and Out. I don't know if you've ever been to one of those, but everyone ties their apron with these giant safety pins that are about this big. Gotcha. But yeah, it's been a few years since I've seen this. I do remember it being like kind of a so bad it's good, fun to watch movie. There's like some like weird like stunt work in it like people jumping out of windows and stuff like that so yeah I'm, i remember it being pretty fun no oh, yeah there's a great fight scene towards the end just like <laughs> um like like just pure fist fighting on the street that's just terribly choreographed and it's great it's a lot of fun <laughs> nice uh chris here you go your final pick of the draft sir so uh, my final pick is not my least favorite pick, but it is the most obscure, so I saved it for last because I figured there's very little chance of someone stealing it from me, and I was right. Um, my final draft is a film from 1981 out of Hong Kong called Corpse Mania. Um, okay. With my previous pick of Giallo in Venice, spoke a little bit about the Giallo genre, leads nicely into talking about Corpse Mania because it is essentially a Hong Kong giallo. It is heavily informed by Western cinematic tradition, but it does a lot of things that are very distinctly Hong Kong. Um, It was produced by Shaw Brothers Studios. They were one of the major production houses in Hong Kong, mainly known for martial arts films, uh, but they did start dipping their toes into horror in the mid 70s um up until recently like i would say that most people in the west wouldn't have really known shaw brothers unless they were really into kung fu movies but i think it was shout factory started putting out box sets of shaw brothers films so i've seen a lot more talk about them from people who may not necessarily have known about them just a few years ago um but I still don't think that Shaw Brothers horror output is really getting the recognition it deserves because there are some really great horror films in their catalog that range from silly fun, like the oily maniac up to some like really legitimately great genre films like seeing of a ghost or this film corpse mania. Um, it was directed and written by Chi Hung Kuei. I'm probably butchering that. I'm sorry. Um, He also directed some of the other Shaw Brothers horror movies that are better known, like Hex and The Boxer's Omen. This movie is set in Guangzhou, China, sometime in like the 30s or 40s. They don't say it outright, and I'm not like super familiar with Chinese history, so that's just me taking a guess. Um, But basically the gist of it is that there's a guy who was sent to some sort of institution after he was caught... Um, defiling a corpse I guess we'll say Um, and two years later he's been released similar crimes start and uh, they all revolve around women that work at a brothel and we follow a police inspector who's trying to 
catch this guy. And of course, there's like twists, turns, mistaken identities, all that stuff you see in a classic giallo. It sort of alternates between scenes of police investigation and scenes detailing the murders and activities of the killer. Structure is nearly identical to Giallo and Venice because they're both Giallos, but there's also like an extended flashback scene that takes up like the first act of the film. Um, Where this movie differs from Giallo and Venice, though, is that it's not nearly as violent and the investigation scenes are actually engaging enough that corpse mania um, will be accessible enough to people that aren't like depraved degenerates. (laughs) (laughs) But that's not to say that Corpse Mania is without its fair share of uneasy moments. Um, It is, after all, a movie about a necrophiliac murderer. Um, And unsurprisingly, it's scenes that focus on that, which are the most uncomfortable. It's not sexually explicit at all, but there's like an interesting thing going on where we have sequences filmed with sort of a soft focus like cinemax eroticism to them but then we also see like these same scenes from a more objective standpoint um which as you can imagine both versions of that are pretty unsettling in their own ways um that's really where this movie stands out um aesthetically it's it's a really beautiful film you have the backdrop of 1930s or 40s uh Hong Kong or Guangzhou there's like cobblestone streets and spider webs everywhere and there's just really like beautiful lighting and fog so there's definitely a lot of that giallo feel to it but it also one thing it harkens back to is maybe something like House of Wax with Vincent Price where you like see him wearing his wax mask wax mask running through the streets of New York um there's some different decent gore in this one. It's not extremely violent. There's a lot of the bright Nextel blood and the action definitely has a very distinct Hong Kong flair to it. Uh, the killer has an awesome costume and he also has this huge knife and there's always like a starburst effect coming off of it, which is just a very like martial arts Hong Kong thing. Um, it's got a great score. It's got a, a frenetic energy to it that I really enjoy. Um, yeah, it's, I I think it's a very interesting movie. I think more people should see this and it's a shame that it's not more well-known. Um, this is the only one that I picked that's not streaming because I did try to like keep it to things that people would actually be able to watch, but there was a DVD put out in like 2006 or 2008 that has English subtitles. Nice. Nice. That sounds Awesome. awesome yeah that's a great it's very good i i it's one of those ones that i talk about to anyone that will listen and it always falls on deaf ears um so i'm (laughs) i'm glad to have a captive audience because i think that this is a movie that people would really enjoy if they if they watched it nice yeah it sounds good that's awesome yeah so people search it out since it's not streaming i guess you'll have to do a little digging but it's available corpse mania Corpse also, Mania. what a great title for a movie. That is an incredible yeah, name. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, Nick and Chris have finished their drafts. We're down to one final pick for me. Um, I've thought about this for a little while here because there's so many movies. 
I could choose here. And I know I'm going to break the hearts of the five-day rental boys because Amsterdam is not going to be my cho- my choice here. I'm sorry, gentlemen. I'm sure you, you've been th- screaming at your phones or whatever device you're listening to this on wondering why no one chose <laughs> Amsterdam. I'm sorry. I know it's a fun movie, but if I, I'm going to pick a first-time watch for this uh, draft, one that I saw the one-sheet poster and said, I got to watch this. Uh, it is Deadly Games from 1982. Mm. It is, I mean, did you watch this, Nick? I see you kind of not for this. give like a class. No, okay. it's like I have it right here on my list, and it was going to be my one and only um, runner-up if we had talked about oh, really? special mentions. So I'm glad you're talking about it right now. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, um, oh, yeah. I mean, the, the poster drew me in. It's, it's, it's dice, but with spikes mm-hmm. on them being rolled by this, like, you know, hand that's floating, uh, above and, uh, just a, a gorgeous, gorgeous poster, which God, I would love to have. Um, but I think might be hard to find because this, like, I think originally premiered in, on TV and then went to some theaters like uh uh in some areas like St. Louis and Kansas City and stuff. Um I was do I did a little bit of digging about like the the history of it. So that was a surprise to me that this started as a TV movie that then went to theaters. It appears at least per per Wikipedia, but who knows actually I guess if that's Oh wait, if that's 100% accurate. Interesting. I'm sorry, I just looked it up. So there's a second movie called Deadly Games, and the one that I am talking about will still be my runner-up because it's not this one, <laughs> and I'm not familiar oh, with this. You're talking? Are you talking the 1989 version? Yes. Ah, I see. I believe it's 1989. Yeah, this is uh no, this is 1982. Yes, I can. Oh, uh, uh, okay, sorry. This one, no, no, that's quite all right. This one, it's uh. The down, the bummer for me because I love games and I love board game related stuff. So that was one of the reasons that really I wanted to watch this was that I wished board games and things like that played a bigger role really <laughs> with with the killer in the film. It it unfortunately doesn't really play that big of a an aspect to it. Uh, but basically, there's a, uh, a this town. There's like a. Um, a serial killer, a serial murderer who wears like a ski mask who's terrorizing young women. Tale as old as time in the slasher genre, essentially. Um, and you're sort of led down the path to think it's like one character and, you know, and, and you know, there's a reveal and everything of who the, the, the actual killer is and everything at the end. Um, I'm also picking this not just because it's fun, uh, but I'm picking this because Dick Buttkiss is in it. <laughs> and I could not believe it. I, he, he comes on. As like the 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 cook at the local diner, but I think also the owner of it. And I was like, "Is that what?" And then I and sure enough, it's Dick Buckus. And in fact, there is a scene in the film where they play a pickup game of tackle football, <laughs> like the guys in town. Not only is Dick Buckus like the the best player, he's wearing a Dick Buckus, <laughs> I think forty one jersey. And everything, and I looked it up at first. So I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's his actual jersey. And then I looked, but it's it's a t-shirt, but it's it's got like the the 41 bear, you know. The anyway, and I looked it up, and sure enough, that was the number 
he wore it everything. <laughs> so I, I couldn't uh, believe it. I was like, oh, this is this is so wonderful. I love I love this. Uh, so there you go. That is my pitch for Deadly Games from 1982 as the last pick awesome. of this draft. Yeah, that yeah, great. And th- there's some really fun stuff with it. I mean, you know, it's, it, there's some really fun like shots, some interesting setups and kills and everything in it that I think work really well uh, as well. Um, it's very competently made, if not like incredibly flashy and amazing looking, but um, but it's good. I think it's I think it's a decent uh, entry into the the slasher genre. So there you go, my final pick. Yeah, this is uh, one nice. that if we had had just a little bit more time, I would have watched this because I saw the cover and read the description, and I was like, that sounds awesome. Um, yeah, I guess yeah. has Steve Rails back in it, who's a great yep. genre actor. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely gonna check it out sometime soon. Yeah, I uh, in prep. So t- in order to watch this, because this was very high at the list of the movies I wanted to watch for this draft, I signed up for the Arrow Player, their streaming service, <laughs> which I didn't have before. Just primarily because I wanted to watch this film specifically, and that's the only place where it is because it it came onto Blu-ray with them last year, I think. So there you oh, go. Nice, nice. All right, to wrap up the draft, uh, our guest Chris took Don't Go in the House in the first round. He took 10 to Midnight in the second, Evil Dead Trap in the third, Giallo in Venice in the fourth, and Corpse Mania in the fifth round. Nick took Alone in the Dark in the first round, Edge of the Axe in the second, Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge in the third round, Laid to Rest in the fourth, and Killer Workout in the fifth. Uh, I took Terror Train in the first round, Fade to Black in the second, Black Rock in the third, Creep in the fourth, and then Deadly Games in the fifth. That concludes the obscure slasher genre. Uh, Nick, I know you only said you only had one uh honorable mention aka what we call our undrafted free agents and that's deadly games from 1989 is that correct yes a french movie uh deadly games also known as dial code santa claus and then also known as its french name which i don't have in front of me um but it's been known and i think released under all three names nice well i must have missed this on the list because uh i think uh, it's listed as deadly games on the list um it is okay. it shouldn't be just, on the list I, <laughs> like okay. i don't think it's really a slasher movie but since it was on the list it made my mm-hmm. honorable mentions um it's uh agfa just released it like a couple years ago in in the u.s or re-released it or whatever um okay it's i thought vinegar syndrome did it uh they because i may I'm have... pre- okay i don't know if it was i was gonna a... say because i'm pretty sure i actually own this version on uh, like Blu-ray or 4K, but I haven't. I actually haven't watched it yet, so oh. that's why I actually yeah, would like to get it. But I thought it was it. a vinegar syndrome. Um, yeah, I didn't love the movie. I'll say that I've only seen it once. Um, <laughs> but I, it's it's a movie that I would want to own. It's basically, I mean, the premise of the movie is essentially it's like the French Home Alone if Home Alone was an actual like horror thriller um, and not a comedy yeah. or family film. Um, I. I but but it came out before, before Home Alone. Alone, so some people think Home Alone stole. A yes, lot of I believe there yeah. may have actually been, at the very least, the beginning stages of a lawsuit. I'm not sure if it ever made it to court or not, but I believe that there were oh. was at least some threat of legal action because um, yeah, it was Home Alone came out so close to this and was 
Um, yeah, but I, the producers of Home Alone and Chris Columbus, I think, maintain that they'd never heard of this movie, and either way, they would have already been in pre-production of this, and blah, blah, blah. Um, gotcha. Yeah, it's just, it's not, you know, it's not funny. Uh, it's not particularly, like, violent. I don't remember it being, like, a slasher movie, so it shouldn't necessarily be on this list. Um, and it's not scary, so it's, like, it doesn't do any one of those things enough to, to make it particularly... Um, you know, memorable for me. Um, that being said, I mean, it's it's an interesting movie to watch just because of its history as, like, the French Home Alone, and it, it is that premise. Um, and the main difference is that the, apart from it being, you know, a serious take on it, that the, um, the home invader is, like, dressed as Santa Claus. So that mm-hmm. there's, like, a nice twist with, like, the kid being like, this is Santa Claus, he's a guy I've grown up, like, you know, loving and trusting and here he is invading my house and trying to murder everything and killing my dog and shit. So, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it's, it's worth, worth watching. It's on uh, shutter, I think now. Um, and obviously, like you said, it, there was a disc release a couple years ago. So that's my only one. Yeah. All right. Well, Chris, you got to have a, a long list of honorable mentions yeah. here. You want to plug how much time you got, <laughs> <laughs> H- however long you want to take. So <laughs> basically, I was like, I kind of just threw this, this category out there. And then like, when we got to it, I was like, I actually, I don't think I really like slashers that much. (laughs) But then I immediately came up with like the five that I wanted to pick, but they're all not very slashery. Like none of them are teenager movies. So yeah, I don't know where I was going with that, but. I was kind of surprised at like how many things I could come up with. Um, one thing you mentioned earlier, death spa that was on the list. This was a first time watch for me in preparation for the cast. I think you were talking about, I think you might've drafted it for VHS horror covers. I did. Um, And I hadn't watched it at that point. So yeah, it was my first time watch for this. The cover is important because on the one hand, yes, this movie is kind of a cheesy eighties horror film about people dying at a gym. Uh, which mm-hmm. the cover so the cover so expertly expresses but also this movie was shockingly good to me i was surprised yeah. how much i liked this um same it is cheesy but you can tell the people that made it like actually cared about it um mm-hmm. especially the production designer because whoever did that did an outstanding job uh yeah. maybe it's just my aesthetic taste but this takes place in like this memphis group nightmare of a gym with like all of these crazy like tiger patterns on the wall um there's i mean you guys were talking about edge of the axe and all the computers there's a bunch of panels with buttons and switches on it because this this movie is about a high-tech automated gym um nobody knows what any of those buttons do but they're there and they're blinking and it looks great uh the kills in it are pretty good ken foray is in it so it's uh, yep. it's definitely worth checking it out um i i was very surprised how good this was it was the only first time watch that came close to like cracking one of my top five picks i mean i'm right there with you and being surprised by how good the movie was um but I, I, I again i couldn't i didn't put it on my list but i agree like really great production design really beautifully shot mm-hmm. i mean you know great use of like color and everything in it 
and uh, strong performances all throughout. Like I, I agree. Like this was a super shock to me because when I drafted that in the VHS covers, I mean, I just assume you know those yeah. covers. Uh, many of them have to be so good to sell a shitty movie, basically. Right. So when Death Spot was actually like a very like well put together film, it 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 is quite the shock. So yeah, I, I'm with you. That was the biggest surprise for me as a first time view. For yeah, I, the only reason i didn't pick it is because it is kind of like traps an evil dead trap so there's that similarity mm-hmm. but it also ends up having some supernatural elements because this yeah. <laughs> movie has everything yeah that's kind of the one i was alluding to when i talked about some of these were being more ghost stories and like supernatural stuff when we were uh talking about the list originally uh looking through it yeah yeah what what else though what else would you uh, really want to shout out butcher baker nightmare maker from 1981 i'm not sure if either of you have seen that um no. there's I, I noticed about my list that there's a very like other than evil dead trap which was 1988 there's like a very tight time period that i picked like 79 to 83 and i think that's mm-hmm. because i like i was saying i'm like other than friday the 13th i really am not a huge fan of like that setup for a slasher of like teenagers getting offed in the woods um so yeah butcher baker nightmare maker is from 1981 i think that's interesting because it's like the conventions hadn't been fully codified yet so in my opinion there's more interesting movies coming out like right after halloween and friday the 13th but um yeah so this is about a kid Jim played by Jimmy McNichol who lives with his crazy aunt um Susan Tyrell who's been in just a ton of B movies like Forbidden Zone, Flesh and Blood, uh John Waters Crybaby. She's been in so many movies. The basic plot is that she kills a TV repairman and then even though she admits to the police that she killed the TV repairman there's a police detective played by Bo Svensson, who is also a B-movie giant from like Cruise Con- Speed 2 Cruise Control and Kill Bill Volume 2. Um, this police detective doesn't believe that the aunt killed that. He thinks Billy did it, the Jimmy McNichol character. And the reason he thinks that is because for some reason he thinks that Billy is gay. Um and that's what I found to be truly interesting about this movie, because despite the fact that it came out in 1981, it goes to great lengths to make sure that, you know, like that the cop is the bad guy and really the only redeemable characters in the movie are the gay or possibly gay characters. So I thought that that was a really interesting thing to come out in 1981. Um, so yeah, it's it's an interesting film. Um and it also has it's Bill Paxton's first credited role. He plays a character in it, so nice. Very cool. Yeah. Uh any other ones you want to shout out? There's like four, but I've been talking <laughs> a lot. So I'll just right. I'll just leave it with one last one, which is Streets from 1990, directed by Cat Shea. It stars a very young Christina Applegate. I think Kat Shea is a very fun filmmaker. She has two other movies that were honorable mentions, Strip to Kill and Strip to Kill 2. 
but Streets is a very hard movie to pin down genre. It's about Christina Christina Applegate as like this underage street urchin sex worker who is being chased by a cop. It's kind of like it would be an erotic thriller, but it's about underage people, so it's not sexy in any way. Or it would be a slasher, except the killer exclusively uses like a homemade sawed off shotgun. It's just a very weird movie. It's like a 1990s Southern California giallo. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's checkout streets. It's a good one. Gotcha. Excellent choices. Um, uh, I had a lot that I watched for this and I don't want to take up any more time, uh, either. I'm going to shout out the one film I was possibly thinking about taking besides deadly games is, uh, the banker from Uh. 1989, which it's to me, like as soon as the movie started, I was like, Oh my God, this is like American psycho light or something. (laughs) But also uh, shades of 10 to midnight, because you know who the killer is right from the beginning. You see him doing his killing. Uh, and it's really about Ken Robert Forster who plays, uh, the cop, uh, trying to, uh, catch him. Can he catch him before, you know, he, he kills more people. And the, um, killer is, uh, this banker named, uh, Osborne played by Duncan Rhaegar, who any fan of the monster squad knows Mm -hmm. was Dracula in the monster squad. Uh, so, uh, this was just like fun and a little goofy, but not too silly and ridiculous. And, uh, and Duncan looks great in this movie. I mean, this dude's like fucking built in this movie. And he's very <laughs> like a foreboding presence in it. Uh, so this was fun. This was a lot. This was just like a kind of a blast to watch and would have been like the, the one I possibly would have chosen besides uh, deadly games. So did you, did you, sounds like you watched it, Chris? I have seen, I watched this a long time ago. Um, okay. and I think, you know, based on your recommendation, I might have to go back and watch it because it's one of those ones that just washed over me. Like I know I've seen it and, but all I can think of is like Robert Forster's in it. That's all I remember. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And he has a great introduction. He, (laughs) we're introduced to Robert Forster when he wakes up in his nephew's tree house where he has like, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like passed out drunk i believe from the night before uh so it's it's quite the introduction to him as a character and uh and it was a it was a, it was a fun movie to watch so i that's the one i really want to point out and again sorry five day rental boys um amsterdam would be another another <laughs> honorable mention there yeah because uh, that's a lot of fun too and has some great uh you know death scenes and 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 stuff so I watched that one and it's just, it's too long, but that boat chase scene is amazing. Oh yeah. That is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, It's been, it's phenomenal. Uh, okay. So that's going to wrap up, uh, this edition of the, uh, uh, horror drafts, uh, podcast. But before we go, Chris, I got to give you a chance to plug anything you want. We talked about molehill. You want to, give that a, another plug or anything else you want to shout out or point people to um yeah so you can find me at mount molehill podcast on instagram instagram that's pretty much the only social media i'm on at the moment um and you can find the podcast anywhere you listen to pods um 
The next episode is going to be out on August 7th. That one's going to be about a lesser-known cryptid that was first described by a very well-known historical figure. So hopefully that'll be of interest to some people out there. <clears throat> I also recently guested on a podcast called Waxing the Porpoise to talk about the 1977 film Orca. And I believe that will be releasing on August 3rd, so be on the lookout for that as well. Nice. Awesome. Waxing the Porpoise. That is... Some name. If that wasn't a band name, that's a good name for a podcast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, awesome. Um, well, uh, I, I'm, I, I hate uh, promoting myself, but I'm going to ask if anyone is interested. My documentary is currently available on the Shorts Daily channel. Uh, if you have a Roku device, uh, it's a Roku exclusive channel. I do apologize, but they partner with a lot of film festivals and my documentary is currently out on that channel as part of the Holly Weird Film Festival. I believe it will be on there through the end of August, although I'm not sure if it's exactly all the way through the end of August. So uh, if you wanna watch um, the documentary, especially if you don't live in the New England area where it will be going to a couple other festivals um, later this fall, uh, that might be the best option for you to see it. Um, and that's uh, enough of me talking about my documentary. Nick, anything you wanna uh, plug or anything? Uh, no, I would have mentioned your documentary too. People should go see it. Okay. Seek it out. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it. We're going to wrap up this episode. Thank you so much, everybody. Um, go check out our podcasting friends, The Five Day Rentals, Best Little Whorehouse in Philly, uh, The Weekly Podcast Massacre, uh, uh, any, any, all of them. I'm sorry. I feel like I'm forgetting some right now, but it's been a long record and now I'm blanking. So I'm sorry if I've forgotten any of our podcast friends. Uh, there you go. That's it. We're going to end this episode now. The song you heard in this episode is You Are a Monster by Monroeville Music Center. It's being used under a CCBY Creative Commons license and was accessed from freemusicarchive.org. If you'd like to hear more of Monroeville Music Center, you can find them on Bandcamp, their Facebook page, YouTube, Spotify, Pandora, Apple Music, Discogs, iHeartRadio, and Deezer. And hey, if you want to reach out and communicate with us, please send an email to horrordraftspod at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at horrordrafts, all one word. We'd love to hear any questions you have for us, suggestions for topics to draft, or ideas for guests, especially if you can put us in touch with them. Thanks everyone, and we hope to hear from you soon.